Me and America. Meryl Streep. Streep used the time allotted for her acceptance of a Lifetime Achievement Award at the 2016 Golden Globes to express her concern about the effects of Trump's persistent meanness on the rest of us. She specifically spoke of one example, among many, of his vicious disrespect for others. Trump's ridicule of a disabled reporter during the violent and manipulative government takeover that was called the 2016 presidential campaign. She pointed to Trump's unfair advantage in his bullying of a man who didn't have the power, influence, or resources to defend himself. She pointed out that it is even worse that such behavior came from a person in power because it gives a green light to all the people around him who are predisposed to such bullying. Streep knows how a president affects the tone of a country because she knows how a star affects the tone of a movie set. I worked with Meryl Streep for one week in the 1980s. I had a small role in the movie Heartburn, which was shot in New York. Streep was under a great deal of pressure when she was working on the film. It was her first comedy. It seems ridiculous to consider now, but many in the media were questioning whether she could pull it off. She had not had one career misstep in her 10 years of filmmaking, and many were eager to cut her down to size. Plus, she had uh, creative differences with her first leading man. He was eventually replaced by Jack Nicholson, and Streep was characterized by some in the press as an egoistic diva. I was a year out of working in the resident company at Second City. I was around 30 years old and doing Louis Black's free show and my own Rick show at the West Bank Cafe Basement Theater Bar on 43rd Street and 9th Avenue. The only time I felt any personal confidence in those days was when I was performing or writing. <coughs> I made friends only through my performances. I couldn't engage someone in an initial conversation just by meeting them eye-to-eye, one-on-one. After I got to know them, I couldn't stop talking, and I haven't, tried, I haven't changed that much in that second regard. Mike Nichols cast me in the movie. My entire time on that set was an experience of terror, punctuated by commas of relief when I had to perform. One morning I was sent to makeup. Meryl Streep came in to be made up herself. She sat in the chair next to me. We were together for about 45 minutes. I was paralyzed. She spent the entire time praising me, a bit as an actor, and more importantly as a person. I was so intelligent and healthy looking. She smiled at me and said I was funny. She did all that she could to boost my confidence and did it in such a lovely and indirect way. I wasn't the, it wasn't only me that Shreep treated with respect and affection. 
Streep was kind to the makeup people, all the actors, everyone in the crew. She was a kind of royalty. But she was a royal who knew that we are all equal in our humanity. She was not the temperamental diva of the malicious press characterizations at that vulnerable moment in her career. She was the opposite. At the Golden Globes, she revealed that her kindness is a kindness of a very thoughtful type. She is very aware of her responsibility to society as a whole. Streep lectured Trump because she is everything as a person that he is not and should be as a person who holds the office of President of the United States. She is sad and prophetically disturbed that Trump gave a, quote, highly effective performance in the campaign that had nothing good about it, but achieved its desired results by making its target audience, quote, laugh and bare its teeth. Streep clearly pointed out the cultural moment of meanness before us in simple and down-to-earth terms. Trump responded by calling Streep a Hillary lover, a cunning insult with its racist echo. Translation of Hillary lover. Get it, white nationalists? Nudge, nudge? And newly unashamed racists that are such a big part of his base? Treat Hillary lovers like the end lovers that they are. Mock them, shout them down, or worse. Old dog whistle Trump is telling his followers to break out the crosses in the lighter fluid and go downtown where the liberal arts majors live and stir things up. Some people look for answers as to how to respond to Trump. Most of us will be dealing with his fascist foot soldiers, many of our neighbors and colleagues. I think we can take a lesson from Meryl Streep. We shouldn't be afraid of Trump and his minions. We should speak out about what we see. We should collectively stand up against Trump's words and deeds and minimize his influence. We'll probably have to take risks as we speak our minds as Trump's power grows as he uses it. But silence is the greater risk. They want to hurt you anyway. Better to speak out against it. I'm talking about holiday parties, work, in the supermarket, everywhere. If you're not inclined to speak out, let your life do so. Let there be no doubt that you are outraged by all that Trump represents. You know how to show your feelings, even if you aren't a big talker. The Republicans are going to execute devastating public policy, but they can't trash our entire culture unless we let them do it. We can deny Trump much of his influence over people's hearts and minds and eventually fix the Republican wreckage in the aftermath. This is a kind of war. I was waiting to make a left turn at the corner of Ashland and Webster in Chicago one afternoon a few years ago. This guy driving a huge semi ran a light and swung his truck from the opposite direction and cursed at me and demanded that I move my car so that he could get through. No other cars were around. He berated me and threatened to flatten my little car. I just nodded no. 
An arrogant look stayed on the guy's face for about three minutes, and then he began to look scared. He stopped blaring his intimidating horn. He started to beg me to move. I did. As he pulled around me, I looked at him. He didn't make eye contact. He couldn't make eye contact. This is how I think we should deal with Trump and the ugliness he has released in our general population. By this point in my life, my timidity has been destroyed by reality. They wanted to destroy me anyway. I might as well go down fighting. I live with a kind of permanent anger always lurking, even in my most joyful moments, but I no longer have the regret of self-betrayal. Most of this is very natural. No credit goes to me. It's just part of the aging process. There are many people who don't approve of my lane choices, but I am the one who is driving. And there are quite a few taking the same route. I used to want to be recognized by the bullies, which was naive and foolish on my part. Now I just want them to leave me alone. I try to go around them and avoid them when I can and confront them when I have to meet their direct attacks. Making heartburn was more influential on my actual life than, in my, than on my life as an actor. Streep consistently shows us how to deal with Trump for the duration of this cancerous cultural phenomenon as she showed me how to be confident from a makeup chair. Meryl Streep, a real deal, more than a brand, the kind movie star who changed the way that I viewed myself in the world many years ago and revealed herself to be a sincere fellow traveler at the 2016 Golden Globes. Note, if you hear this piece as an interesting anecdote about an interaction with a celebrity, you are in error. Humanity can accompany power. Big life. You have to build a following, she said. She was the creative director of a successful theater and wrote a play once that was adapted into a movie which won its lead actress an Oscar. I would advise that you build a big following for your blog, and then maybe you can convince someone to produce you on a stage, but it's very hard. We produce one thing once in a while that is really good. Then we bring out our cash cow, a shit show that everyone loves to pay for it. We have a payroll of 400 people to support. Of course, I didn't have a payroll to meet. It's funny. When you go to people for advice, you more often receive stories about their problems and compromises. I thought of the Stanley Tucci movie, one of the ones he directed, Big Night. It's about two Italian brothers from Abruzzi who open a restaurant. My mother was born in Abruzzi. She was a great cook, more basic and pure than a chef. Her food wasn't self-conscious or ambivalent. It was delicious, and there was a lot of it. One brother, Primo, the chef, is an artist. The other brother, Secundo, is a businessman who is worried about drawing a crowd. 
Primo is compelled to create Italian meals that are authentic and un-Americanized and far beyond the, his New Jersey customers' tastes. The brothers personify an obvious and common conflict between the compulsion to be a success and the desire to create authentic and pure expressions of reality. In other words, the truth. Truth is beauty and beauty truth. Something is aesthetically pleasing when it is made with clear-eyed honesty. The businessman thinks a dollar brings security. The artist senses that anything other than his genuine thought and feeling is a lie. Primo gets his way and cooks an exquisite meal one important evening for a newspaper reviewer and invited guests. She, the theater professional, liked to talk about her, quote, big fat opinions. Her big fat opinions are the source of her at this moment blocked art, her expressions emanating from her true experience with the world, which she withholds from us in the name of quote, financial reality, the biggest artist block of them all. As a result of other plot complications, the restaurant fails. The art of that one meal, of course, brilliantly succeeded, even if it went unrecognized and couldn't be sustained. The art of the meal didn't pay, supposedly, like the art of the deal. But the art of the deal is a scam, it offers no security. America dies choking on business. Primo could be sustained, and he lived to cook again, as did Secundo in his own way. The brothers refused to work for someone else, and end the film with Primo's arm on Secundo's shoulder as they eat plain omelets that Secundo cooked. Omelets, like my mother used to make. My mother taught me the limited value of a dollar. My mother was 93 years old two years ago. I think when she and my dad first married, they worried a lot about money. They probably argued about it, too. None of them makes them none of that makes them different than a lot of us, probably most of us. Somewhere along the way, fairly early in their marriage, my mother took on a mantra from my paternal grandmother. My paternal grandmother was a saint. That's not my Italian American sentimentality showing. Grandma was hospitality and generosity and forgiveness and kindness and love. She was one of millions of beatific souls that have exemplified a purity and goodness to those around them in lives that are as important as they are obscure. Grandma was a mini Mother Teresa in all of the poor neighborhoods that she ever lived in, in Italy, France, and in the United States. Grandma never lived in a neighborhood that wasn't poor. She wasn't egoistically giving back because she never had much of material value herself. But she knew how to live with decency and love. She didn't pick up the goodness habit late in life, as opposed to me, who becomes a slightly better person as I age, because I've lost a small portion of my energy to enjoy sins, 
that I once enjoyed heartily. My grandmother didn't call her adage a mantra, of course. I come from a long line of unsuspectingly Catholic Buddhists. The mantra wasn't clever. I know you've heard this one before. But her mantra was, God will provide. My family's life changed when mom really heard and understood when grandma was saying. We focused on creating rich lives and didn't worry about money. Dad was self-employed. He had a small body and fender shop. Mom worked in a bank. A big wreck seemed to always come in Dad's shop whenever we wanted to take a family vacation. Mom got our health care benefits at her job. We always ate well. Christmas was always abundant. It was important to have nice clothes and see plays and movies. My parents were honest people who were generous, worked hard, and had fun. They never made or fell into a lot of money. For many years, I couldn't figure out how my parents did it. My father always said he would rob Peter to pay Paul. He was referring to paying off one creditor while putting off another as a means of getting by. Wiktionary defines robbing Peter to pay Paul as the expression refers to times before the Reformation when church taxes had to be paid from St. Paul's Church in London and to St. Peter's Church in Rome. Originally, it referred to neglecting the Peter tax in order to have the money to pay the Paul tax. My father had no idea of the origin of the phrase, and he meant something else, even if his technique reflected the standard definition. My dad meant, God will provide, don't worry so much. My father had no political or economic opinions. He had faith in God and life and himself. He woke up every morning of his adult life not knowing how much money he would bring in by the end of the week. He was serene that somehow it would be enough. And most weeks, it was. God provided with some help from Mr. and Mrs. Thomas. Dad died in February 2009. He was 88. The toxic materials he inhaled in that little collision shop took him out. Ironically, he got cancer just as my parents' life savings were running out. My brother hooked my folks up with some good lawyers who handled wrongful death cases. They secured dad and mom good, but by no means exorbitant, settlements from the manufacturers of the poisons dad breathed while he was doing his job. Dad died before the settlement checks started rolling in, but they have paid for my mom's late old age. Now mom is 95 and she's failing. She has advanced dementia. She lives a life largely restricted to her bed, not because of the limits of her body, but because of the imaginings of her brain. She transitioned a couple of years ago from an independent living facility and moved into skilled nursing. 
When mom dies, all the settlement money will be gone. Things make sense late in every story. Mom danced to the line of total poverty and was pulled back from it by my father from beyond the grave with an assist from my brother and his friends, the attorneys. Of course, the rule of law through wrongful death claims and class actions, Social Security, Medicare, and the safety net of Medicaid have also helped, giving my mother all the care that she needed and dignity in her slow march to eternity. My parents' secret regarding money was to play not to win, but to break even. They always focused on creating a life, not a fortune. Money was only a practical detail in achieving their objective. My dad died a satisfied man. He enjoyed his family and friends and soccer and going out to eat well. Everything ordinary and immediate. My mom will die satisfied too. She's had a good run. They are my beacons of joy and goodness. America could learn a lot from my parents and the other millions like them. The American dream itself, joyfully pursued, is the source of our security, not the dream's achievement and the hoarding of its rewards and riches. The pursuit of happiness keeps us alive, not the attainment of happiness. The lower decks of the Titanic have the fun and energy. The upper decks are mummified. Vito Corleone died a happy man, play-acting a satire of a monster's pointless reign of terror to acquire power and success for himself and his little grandson in an innocent garden. The return of the apple of desire was his readmission to paradise. Vito's son, Michael Corleone, lived in solitary confinement in a prison of suspicion, condemned to a life, jealously guarding a treasure that he never truly wanted. The movie The Big Short performs a public service by educating the general public about how Wall Street works through popular entertainment. But even Margot Robbie in a, in a bubble bath can't explain mortgage-backed securities to me. I just can't get interested in all that money. It bores me. I thank Grandma and Dad, and especially Mom, for that reaction. I visit Mom, and even when she drifts a little away from reality, she talks about what the Thomas family thinks is important, working to create goodness and joy for ourselves and other people. My parents were, my mom still is, very young people, always engaged, always going after the next dream. They never had it made, and that made all the difference. The former playwright in the theater business, remember her, said that talented and committed artists often don't succeed. She disagreed with this quote 
that I offered from Goethe. Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents, meetings, and material assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Begin it now. My parents understood Goethe, even if they never heard of him. The theater businesswoman was born primo, but something happened, and she transformed into secundo on the bad days before he acquiesced to life and rejected fearful acquisition on the morning after the big night when the perfect meal had been served. Just like all dying and failing white America renamed Titania someday, with depressive suicides on the lower decks, surrendering to a meth-induced haze that fills the stagnant air of failure and the mean spirit of hoarding on the upper decks, fearfully clinging to whatever is left of the work of past generations, no longer reaching for anything new. My father got sick and died. An audience member who was at my show one Saturday night last summer offered me some reasons why people should be denied health care. They didn't take care of themselves. They were lazy. We shouldn't pay for people who don't contribute to the system. He had a very hard-nosed moral tone in his voice as he offered his opinions. He felt certain sick people would feel the shame for what they brought. He felt that certain sick people should feel shame for what they brought upon themselves. You know who I think should feel ashamed? A fucking animal who would deny medical attention to any human being who needs it. Any human. Whether someone thinks they deserve it or not. The biggest fucking bum in the world should be taken care of when he is sick. No matter how evil or undisciplined he may have been. And certainly, any poor people who've had their lives destroyed by the thieving rich should receive care. Any fucking buddy. When my father was dying, he was in hospice. His care plan said that he would have no invasive treatment, such as radiation, but he would have all he needed for his comfort. He contracted a urinary tract infection, which could be cured easily with an antibiotic. His nurse didn't give it to him. She said with an authority that she had no right to assume. We decided not to. We got my father the fucking antibiotic. But he had to live a few of his last days in discomfort because Big Nurse couldn't wait for him to die. My father had done nothing wrong by anybody's standards. He would even pass muster with my stern audience member 
who thinks human beings should be sentenced to death for gross imperfections like smoking or an improper diet. People like the audience member believe in two things, markets and punishment. Fuck education, fuck friendship, fuck forgiveness, fuck love, fuck healthcare. Build another prison and make another judgmental remark. The nurse wanted my father to be shamed for dying slowly. She had to save some money that could be handed to some rich people who didn't need it. Nothing in her life was more important than pleasing the rich people. The shame is on her. I have struggled to understand what makes people so heartless and cruel. They so want to be understood. They want praise for being so good and decent, true Americans. They are among the worst people in the world. The standard liberal explanation is that they have suffered and they carry on the abuse. But I no longer buy that. Their personal lousiness is a choice. Everyone that has had a tough time putting food on the table, don't become as ugly and cruel as these people. My father, for example, had a very tough life. He was physically abused, sexually abused, actually, in fascist schools in Italy. Priests who worked for Mussolini molested my father. He encountered great discrimination. I didn't even know, you know. I mean, uh, he, he didn't know, really. He just talked about it once innocently. I was like 16 years old, and he started to describe it. And uh, he didn't know it, but he was describing being molested. He encountered great discrimination in America as a poor Italian immigrant. He did hard labor in an auto body shop for decades, breathing in the toxic materials that ultimately killed him. He never gave in to the harsh violence and lack of generosity that the audience member and the nurse embrace. He was confused at times, but he never took sadistic joy at the suffering of others. He wasn't a rich man by any means, but he never placed even a needed dollar above another person. How these assholes lie to themselves and believe that their fear and jealousy are virtues. They resent the world because of their own material and spiritual failures. They hate the immigrants who come to their towns with nothing and subsequently thrive with hard work and initiative, while they themselves mock the educated on their way to the meth dealer's house. Trump and Mitch McConnell aren't the problems. The audience member and the nurse are the problems. Trump and McConnell just manipulate what already exists in these walking suicides. We have this immor awful immoral government because we share this nation with these awful immoral people. I have no tolerance for what these people are. I was originally going to say for what these people believe, but this piece has nothing to do with ideas or opinions. I can't stand what these people are. There's no excuse for it. They've chosen death. I want nothing to do with them until they change. And I do believe in redemption, but not compromise. Not with these people. And not now.
Frank McCourt slept here. Someone has always gone down your road before you do. Frank McCourt, the author of Angela's Ashes, his memoir about his childhood in Ireland, tells this brief anecdote in his essay, Learning to Chill Out. After I retired, it's from his job as a teacher in the New York City public schools, I did a theater act in New York with my brother Malachi about growing up in Limerick and our adventures in America. I met uh, Frank and Malachi McCourt when I was an actor in the Second City Resident Company, and they were touring with that show, A Couple of Blaggards, in the early 1980s in Chicago. They would come to the Second City Bar after the curtain of our respective performances and enjoy the free beer and liquor actors were treated to by the generous producer, Joyce Sloan. I didn't hang out after hours much unless there was food being offered. This was a pretty common occurrence. The pizza was pretty good. Or when someone I thought was interesting dropped by. I talked with Timothy Leary and G. Gordon Liddy at that bar, for example, and an old-school 1930 socialist named Hank. The cradle will rock. I found Malachi and Frank very interesting. They were charming and literate, sophisticated, and down-to-earth at the same time. Malachi was more gregarious than Frank. He drank more and longer. Frank was quiet, but had a warm and empathetic smile. He seemed to notice more than everyone else. He conversed with everybody, but he most impressed me with his kind silence when he was listening. Frank McCourt continues from his essay. That might have been one way of putting my boyhood into literary form, a couple of blackguards. But as it turned out, it wasn't honest. It wasn't entertainment. I don't even like it, though we made some money out of it. I was in conflict with my brother and the producer. I had an idea and they had other ideas. They wanted a show that got laughs. But essentially, it was as false as the novel. The novel that McCord is referring to here is a fictional effort of the inspiration that ultimately was realized as the non-fictive Angela's Ashes. McCord continues, There was no attempt at exploration. I gave up fighting about it because I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to write my book. Frank McCourt and I come from very different places. I'm a first-generation, middle-class Italian-American from upstate New York, whose parents paid for my Jesuit prep school, Notre Dame, and Loyola Law School education. But we each have discovered ourselves through a painful desire to leave people, places, and ideas that stymied the expression of our essential natures. And by working toward the fulfillment of that desire and the realization of that expression, the steps have been to be in conflict with that and those that restricted us through the conflict determining what we really wanted to do, doing that thing, and finally achieving peace with who and what seemed to oppress us through a recognition, through a recognition of our difference. No pain, no gain. 
I went to law school to please an unspoken wish of my parents. I've never liked lawyers. They preen, demean, and argue too much. Okay, this is an unfair generalization. Many lawyers have fine qualities and are serious human beings, and many deserve my uncharitable description. But the archetype lawyer has been a negative in my psyche since I was very young. There is nothing in my being that said, in my essential being that says lawyer. I did not attend my law school graduation. I performed that night with the Second City Touring Company at a low-run prefab resort called the Chateau, the Chateau Louise. If that dump was a chateau, I can only blame my, fi- my foray into show business on myself. I lived much of my life in the perceived shadow of a successful older brother who was a professional football player and is a state Supreme Court justice today. He pleased my father with his capacity to win. I made my father laugh. If I could win by making people laugh, I figured I'd kill two birds with one stone. And for a while I did win, or at least modestly succeed, in comedy. I made a living as a comic actor and teacher of improvisational comedy for about 10 years. But something happened. I started doing a one-man show that wasn't always funny. I wanted to say things. I wanted to explore. I didn't know it consciously, but I began to irrationally resent the audience. I wanted to please myself and God, maybe, not them. It took me decades to sort out my conflicts with the law and show business and the people in both fields. I was in my mid-50s when I realized that teaching was the only job that I could live with as a means of supporting myself. I was in my late 50s when I realized that all of my aborted writing attempts over 30 years were struggling expressions of my essential nature. I am a writer. Progress in my process of self-discovery has been painfully slow. I sat for the bar exam only once 25 years after I graduated from law school, when I was 50, and passed the test amazingly on the first try. I report this with pride. My success with the bar exam was more of a spiritual than career accomplishment. It was the first step in resolving one of the two great issues of my life. My peace with show business would come later. I had mistakenly pitted law and show business against each other. My mind saw each as the escape from the other. All the while, writing was whispering. Writing may have spoken so softly because it knew that my confusion and all the blind alleys it dispatched me to would give me something to write about when I was ready. My brother got me my first job as a lawyer. I worked for a successful fundamentalist Christian attorney who represented insurance companies. Two things that I've always disliked are successful fundamentalist Christian attorneys and insurance companies. I was fired after I loudly told some unsurprisingly mean-spirited attorneys in the firm about their lack of decency and the dangers inherent in their rejection of their core humanity. 
This apparently was in violation of the corporate culture. I didn't see it in the employee handbook. Eventually, I landed another job, working the, the state Supreme Court Commission that regulated and disciplined lawyers. One of the bosses that was a friend of mine in law school, one of the bosses there was a friend of mine in law school, but my brother's position on the court didn't harm my chances for the job. I reckoned this job might put me productively on the side of the angels. I learned, ironically, a lot about writing on this job, particularly from one supervisor who made me rewrite a complaint for over a year before she accepted it. However, she also denied me a deserved raise. I used that as a pretext to quit the job. The place was overly punitive. Prosecutors too often favor punishments, large and small, instead of education and encouragement as a means of solving problems. I had become a pretty good litigator, but I didn't like many of the people around me. They were often judgmental and vindictive, which isn't a shocker, and only liked the actual hearings when it was impossible for anyone to censor me and I could speak in my own voice. My understandably and initially skeptical wife supported my decision to strike out on my own. I mean, we were married a very short time when I quit when I quit the job as a lawyer, and she must have been thinking, "What's all this about?" I had an idea. I thought I could reconcile the law and show business, so I was going to teach improvisational theater to lawyers. I had a lot of teaching experience, mainly in improvisation, but also from a succession of day jobs that I had in the latter part of my acting career. I taught English as a second language and American history and regents requirements at uh, in a Hasidic Jewish school to fulfill state requirements in New York. I taught for for-profit technical schools and uh, associate degree programs. I did these programs that I had put together myself, Improvisation for Lawyers, for a couple of bar associations, my old law school, and one law firm. Many lawyers needed the interpersonal teamwork and communication skills training that I was offering. I had a marketing problem, however. Most of them didn't see that need. On many occasions, one senior lawyer would commit to hiring me, only to be overruled by more conservative colleagues who would scoff at what I had to offer. I doggedly kept trying to have my round peg fit the lawyer's square hole with a variety of marketing and outreach strategies. I supplemented my income with adjunct teaching jobs and Paula's support. This placed a temporary strain on our young marriage because I discovered personal love late in life as well. I was in my late 50s when I got married for the first time. One of those jobs led to a happy full-time foot at the University of Illinois Chicago Business School. The school is led by a progressive dean, and I have many kind and intelligent colleagues, some of whom I now count as friends. I have learned that the closer one gets to knowledge of oneself, the more angels appear to guide and support you, like Paula and like UIC. All that sustains you arrives without effort or plan. Thanks, Goethe.
Buoyed by, by, buoyed by my happy marriage and my happy job, my inner lawyer vanquished once and for all, I turned my attention to show business. A very successful friend of mine in that field from the old days at Second City and his wife invited me to activities where I could work as an improvisational actor. The work was in glamorous places, in a state on Cape Cod and an actor's collective in Los Angeles. I had the exact same experience with these people as Frank McCord had with Malachy and the producer of a couple of blaggards. Initial commitment, conflict, self-discovery, new and old and unconscious direction, peace. The process led me to the stage and these shows in this former janitor's apartment, working with soulmate director and stage manager, two other people involved in this microscopic production quit, <laughs> naturally, of course. I also learned a good lesson from my old friend and his wife about writing. They had written for a successful sitcom. They told me a writer shouldn't be precious about his words. Let them out, and if they don't work, change them. I haven't stopped writing since they reminded me of that. Good advice. More useful than a week and a half at the Iowa Summer Writers Workshop, where rules of writing are calcified and propagated, as opposed to improvisation, which has the vitality of unfinished life. Love. It's a funny thing about life. If you refuse to accept anything but the best, you often get it. W. Somerset Maugham Our perception of the world is only as good as our consciousness of its possibilities. Most of us have had the experience of being rejected by a lover or job or social group and feeling the pain of losing the best thing that ever happened to us, only to realize in time that our object of desire wasn't even very good. Conversely, some have had the experience of rejecting a lover, job, or social group only to discover later that the regret of missing out on a great opportunity for excellence of love, life, and thought. We get what we need and deserve. Points of rejection made by us or done to us are learning opportunities. There really are no mistakes. Life is just a big school, and we matriculate our way to greater understanding. The only things that we ever lose are our illusions. Mom knew that, knew, W. Somerset Mom, knew what was the best from the inside out. He wanted the externals of his life to match the finer qualities of his soul. Apparently, he felt that he found it. I know what is fine in me. I did the work of figuring that out a long time ago and over a long period of time. It is the world that is my infinite classroom. Before I met Paula, I spent a little over one year on eHarmony.com. I wasn't lonely. I was very happy in my solitude. I never missed not being married, never wanted kids or a family. 
I wasn't afraid of dying alone. I wanted the intimacy of being by the same person's side over time. I thought that closeness was the greatest thing that life could offer and that I was missing out on it. I went on over 80 eHarmony coffee dates. Coffee dates resulting from online contact, at least in my experience, are not dates in the traditional sense. Eighty of them collectively were an anthropological expedition. I was studying my relation to the modern urban middle-aged female, late middle-aged female. I found that I was not a good fit for so-called, quote, yoga, yoga instructors, as opposed to actual yoga instructors who I never really met. The yoga instructors are, well, I found them creepy. I'm really a sweet Catholic boy at heart, and things like pornography and prostitution make me a little sick. I, I don't find exploitation to be the least bit sexy. Oof. Whores in their johns are the ultimate libertarians. I met with one of these women, and I learned how to weed them out of my cache of pros prospects. I actually uh, threw up in a trash can on Wabash Avenue after meeting her. I also met divorcees who were looking for travel companions. The idea of cruise ships makes me want to keep home. And uh, I want to work at the vocation that I figured out very late in my life to the end of my life. Golf courses and resort vacations are of no interest. I met with very hurt women who feared the intimacy that I was seeking. I, I wisely never advertised my endgame. I wanted to see them as they were. And, and many of these poor hurt souls were just weren't ready. Some were very nice. All were sad. Ambivalence is a necessary path on all of uh, is a necessary phase on all of our paths at one time or another. Of course, it precludes connection. Now, I'm just pick out one group, but some of these specific groups, Mormons, for example, uh, political correctness is a bad idea when looking for a soulmate. I mean, some groups have characteristics. I, of course, I respect their right to their beliefs or other characteristics. It doesn't mean I can't work with them. It doesn't mean I can't be friends with them. But I, they, they really couldn't be my spouse. I mean, we're just not compatible. Also, the time passed when, uh, yeah, I'm going to skip that stupid joke. I met uh, materialistic women. Uh, and obviously, they didn't like me either. Political conservatives. Do I have to explain why that wasn't a match? Uh, one woman seemed to think that the Kennedy assassinations were good things. There were a few younger women that I met, but I, I always took a teacher's interest in them. I couldn't see them as potential lovers. And there was a woman who posted a phony photo who was close to 80 years old. <laughs> I admired her gumption, but I felt a cold chill when she put her hand on my thigh. I was too old to play Harold. And she was too old to play Maud. After my 80 dates, I, I was discouraged, although I didn't know it. 
I thought online dating didn't work, at least for me. I started thinking Hallmark card thoughts about destiny and getting things by fate and not effort. One Friday night, I wandered into a bar in Lincoln Square. I never go to bars, and certainly not alone. A guy started talking to me. I think he was an angel of God. He said that he taught for the Chicago Public Schools. He asked me why I was alone. He said that I was too old to be alone. And uh, if I didn't get moving, I would never feel that, these were his words, that intimate feeling. I was shocked that he knew the focus of my recent expedition. I told him I was on eHarmony and didn't connect and was now leaving my intimate fate to the gods. He said, eHarmony is your problem. The women on that site are too conservative for you. Go to Match.com, better for a guy like you. I listened to him. He was like a fortune cookie. I figured, what the hell, I'll listen. I went on Match.com. My first Match coffee date was with Paula. Paula and I share the same birthday. We tell each other that we are sweet, smart, and sexy. Paula started that. Paula is the best. She has a wonderful heart and a wonderful mind. She's so desirable. She loves me to pieces and loves so many other people as well. To be in her family or one of her friends or to work with her is a wonderful gift. She's a much better person than I am, but women just are better than men. I'm as good as I can be, given the natural limitation of my gender. My gender. I knew that I loved Paula right away. I saw that she was the best. It was obvious. I wouldn't have been so primed to identify my love if I hadn't gone on those ADE Harmony coffee dates. I wanted to explore the world and find out what was possible. The two best aids that I had in reaching the best were the rejections that I made of those eHarmony dates and ultimately the real harmony itself that I accepted. Nothing but the best for Rico. That's the end of part one, me, of me in America. Me and America. This is a Rick Blog podcast. It's copyright 2017 by me, Richard Thomas. Everything is obviously written, performed by me. If uh, if you want to reach me, uh, you can reach me at the Rick Blog Podcast at gmail.com.